Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We have been going through a study of the book of Romans here for about a year and a half now, I think, and we're closing in on the end, completing chapter 14 this morning. Uh, We started chapter 14 last week, and you might remember that um, we're looking at chapter 14 in really two parts. So this is really the second part of a two-part kind of mini-series, I guess, on this subject of disputable matters. That's what I called it last week and what we'll call it this week, disputable matters. That is, issues before Christians where there are different opinions and preferences on subjects on which the Bible is not clear, or at least on issues where there's wide disagreement among Christians about what is actually the right thing to do or the right view to hold. These are matters that are of secondary importance. So we're not talking about issues like the resurrection of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, or um, the validity of the Ten Commandments. What we're talking about, secondary issues, issues where there is some gray area and issues where there is a large degree of dispute and disagreement. So, for example, some of the examples I used last week and, you know, the one that we very most often think of is the use of alcohol. Should a Christian drink or not? Well, Christians have very strong opinions about that very different opinions about that. How about the question of what kind of a house a Christian should live in or what kind of a car a Christian should drive? Does a Christian have any business living in a mansion and driving a $50,000 car? Well, Christians have different opinions about that. Um, Certain kinds of music that a Christian would listen to, the kinds of music that are appropriate for a worship service, the kinds of clothes that a Christian might wear to a worship service vegetarianism, whether a Christian should eat meat or not. Some of us have very strongly held opinions on all of these issues, but I would say that all of these are disputable matters. They're secondary issues. Now, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is addressing two different groups of people in the church at Rome. One group is what he calls the weak. The other group is what he calls the strong. And so last week we considered Paul's word or God's word through Paul to the weak, and today we're considering God's word to the strong. So what's the difference between the weak and the strong? Well, the weak, as we talked about last week, and by the way, if you just look at verse 2, you'll see that I'm using that word weak right from the text. Chapter 14, verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So Paul here is referring to a group of people in the Roman church who ate only vegetables. In other words, they refused to eat meat. In their conscience, there was something wrong with eating meat. And last week I went into some detail explaining why that was. I don't want to review all of that now. You can go to the website and listen to that sermon if you'd like. But very briefly, there are laws in the Old Testament, dietary laws, that prohibited the nation of Israel from eating certain foods. And so some of the Christians, probably the Jewish Christians in the Roman church, remembering those commands and prohibitions, 
were still reluctant to want to go ahead and eat meat, even though God had said, and it had been very clear, that it was okay to eat meat. That God did not object to that. That There was nothing wrong with that. Other people in the Roman church had issues because some of the meat that was available to Christians at that time had been used in pagan temples. And so some Christians thought, there's no way that I can eat that. I feel, feel like I'm worshiping a pagan god if I eat that meat, so I can't do it. So Paul says there are these people who eat only vegetables, their conscience won't allow them to eat meat, and he calls them weak. Now, that sounds, I know it's kind of a derogatory comment. I don't think, again, that Paul means they're bad Christians or anything. It's just they have a conscience that's not informed enough to allow them to be able to engage in a freedom that God had given them. So that's how we might define the weak person. It's a person whose conscience is restricting them from enjoying a freedom that God has given to them. They have that freedom. They could eat meat if they wanted, but their conscience won't allow them. And so Paul calls them weak. Now, there's nothing really necessarily wrong with that. Um, I'll comment more on that in just a moment. You know, having a sensitive conscience is not, not a bad thing. The problem occurs, and I think the problem that was going on here in the Roman church, is when the weak person decides that my personal preference and my opinion on this issue is not just my opinion, but one that I am now going to impose on everybody else. <laughs> So, Jerry Bridges uses this example, he's a very popular writer, he said that he came to a place in his own life where he felt like he could not go to the beach. For him to be on the beach with women in scantily clad swimsuits, that was a problem for him, he couldn't do it. And so he resolved in his own mind, I, I can't go to the beach, and he chose not to do it. Nothing wrong with that. That was what was good for Jerry Bridges. Now, the problem would have been created, however, if Jerry Bridges would have said, not only should I not go to the beach, but no one else should either. And no Christian has a right going to the beach. And I'm going to look down upon all my brothers and sisters who go to the beach. They obviously are immature and liberals and on the slippery slide into apostasy because of their willingness to do that. That's the problem with the weak that Paul is addressing. And you can actually see that actually in verse 3, where he says, Let not the one who eats, that's the strong, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains, that's the weak, the one who won't eat meat, but let not the weak pass judgment on the one who eats. Let not the weak develop his judgmental, condescending, condescending attitude toward the strong. So that's a very quick review of what we talked about last week. But today, again, we're looking at a word to the strong. So what does God have to say to the strong? That is, people whose conscience is clear. They don't have any problem eating meat. They don't have any problem drinking alcohol. They don't have any problem driving a really nice car. They don't have any problem coming to church in shorts. You know, their conscience is clear on those things. They're all right with it. But what happens when... That person, the strong person who engages his or her freedom in those ways, finds out that others in the church are grieved by what they're doing, bothered by what they're doing. What should the strong do? How should they react to that? And that's what the second half of this chapter is all about. 
So, let's read Romans chapter 14, picking up on verse 13 to the end of the chapter. If you'd please rise for the reading of God's word. Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Father, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Three things that the strong need to consider. Three kind of categories that they need to think about uh, according to um, this passage here in Romans. The one to the strong is think about creation. There's something here about the doctrine of creation that's very important for us. Notice here, you might have picked this up, that as Paul considers the difference between the strong and the weak, he makes the point pretty clearly that the strong are right. Paul sides with the strong. The weak are not entirely informed biblically. The strong are the ones who are right. So look at verse 14. Um, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So while the weak person thinks that meat is unclean, what Paul says is even though they think it's unclean, it's not. It's not unclean in itself. There's nothing wrong with meat. And verse 20, he says basically the same thing. Um, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. So the problem with the weak is that their conscience is not properly informed. They don't know all that they could know about this situation, and so they've drawn this conclusion that there's something wrong with me. But Paul says, no, that there's not. And this is all based on the doctrine of creation, where we learn in the early chapters of Genesis that God created all things, and after he created the entire universe and created Adam and Eve, he said, it's good. It's all very good. Everything I made is good. Material things are good. Meat in itself. It's good. Music in itself is good. Our, our bodies in themselves are good. Alcohol is, is good. 
in itself. Uh, yeah, I'm probably you're thinking, did he just say that? <laughs> Everything created by God is good. Verse Timothy 4. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See, Christianity is very different than other religions and other worldviews. Other worldviews will always say that there's something outside of us that's the problem. It's, you know, it's the alcohol's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's the society's fault. It's the economy's fault. It's the president's fault. Everyone's always looking to blame somebody outside of themselves. The problem is always out there, but Christianity says, no, the fundamental problem is in here. It's a heart problem. Now, that's not to say that everything I just mentioned is without criticism. I mean, certainly there's problems with what's going on in the world. But what Paul says is fundamentally our issue is a heart problem. And this is what Jesus says. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's not music that defiles a person. It's not alcohol that defiles a person. It's not meat that defiles a person. It's the stuff that comes out of our heart. That's what defiles us. Now, of course, we in our sinfulness take music and meat and alcohol and abuse them and use them for all sorts of illicit and immoral ways. But what the Bible says is those things in themselves as aspects of God's creation, they're good. They're good. Albert Walters. There's a book he wrote called Creation Regained. I would highly recommend that to you. One of the best books I read in seminary. Completely changed my mind on a lot of things. Albert Walters says, so positive a view did God take of what he had created that he refused to scrap it when mankind spoiled it, but determined instead at the cost of his son's life to make it new and good again. God does not make junk, and he does not junk what he has made. So creation is good, and that's, what, that's kind of a foundational doctrine on which Paul is, is operating here. So I think there's two things he would say to the strong as a result of this. The first thing he would say is, enjoy your freedom. Christian, enjoy your freedom. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the blessings of living in God's bountiful, gorgeous, beautiful, glory-filled creation. You should enjoy that. Look at verse 22. Um, the start of verse 22. Uh, this, I'm sorry, the second part of verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So Paul's saying, blessed is the one. Blessed actually means happy. Happy is the one who can enjoy his or her freedom and enjoying God's creation without a conscience that's making him feel guilty about it. That's what he's saying. Blessed is the one who doesn't have to judge himself for the things that he enjoys. So, you know, it, it's... It's okay for Christians to have a glass of wine at dinner. It, it's okay for Christians to, for a husband and wife to go dancing, you know. It, it's, it's okay for Christians to go play volleyball at, at the beach. There's no biblical prohibition against all, any of these things. Again, remember what we're talking about. These are secondary 
matters, secondary matters. Because what, what we also read in Galatians, you've got to remember Galatians 5.13, it says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And so there's always that command to keep in mind and to remember um, as we enjoy our freedoms. So the first thing that Paul would say is enjoy your freedom, but the second thing he would say is keep it to yourself. Because look at the first part of verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So what he means there is that if your conscience is free and you're able to enjoy various freedoms that God has given to you, don't take that freedom and flaunt it out in front of weak people and make a big deal out of the fact that you're okay with it and they're not. Don't rub it in their face. Keep it between yourself and God. Make it a private thing. I mean, if someone asks about it, you can talk about it, but, but don't flaunt it. So, for instance, Mary and I, earlier in our marriage, Mary's mother happens to have... Um, uh, a strong objection to drinking alcohol, and so we would have some bottles of wine in the house, but whenever she would come to visit, we would always put the bottles away. We just kept them out of sight because we didn't want her to be grieved by that. We didn't want her conscience to be bothered by that, and that was kind of our way of kind of keeping that to ourselves. But it's pretty clear here that based on the doctrine of creation that, that Paul says that there's much to be enjoyed, okay? So that's the first point. Second one, though, is this. Think about the kingdom as well. Think about the kingdom. Because, you know, this would be a really horrible time for you to, like, stop listening to this sermon. <laughs> you know... All you out in internet land, you know, if you're listening, please don't press the pause button. Please don't get up and, and leave. Because Paul goes on, there's more to be learned here. Think about the kingdom because there, be, there comes a time, even as Paul gives us this freedom to enjoy ourselves, there comes a time when we are to restrict our freedom. And to say that even though I have the freedom to do this, I'm not going to do it. And the reason why is because there is something far more important than your ability to engage and indulge in your freedom. And that's the kingdom of God. Verse 17, look what he says. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's not what makes the kingdom of God, that you can eat all the meat that you want and drink all the wine that you want and enjoy yourself. That's not, the, that's not primarily what the kingdom is about, nor is the kingdom about a bunch of rules and regulations that fence you in and keep you from enjoying any of your freedoms. That's what Paul's saying here. It's not about legalistic rules and regulations. That's not what the kingdom's about. The kingdom's about righteousness, he says. It's about the righteousness that is granted to anyone who would trust in Christ, the righteousness accomplished by Jesus and secured in his resurrection that is provided for any who would put faith in him. The opportunity to be called righteous through faith alone. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's also about peace, peace with God through faith. That's what the doctrine of justification gives us. God declares us not guilty, and because we're not guilty through faith alone and what Jesus has done, there's peace now between us and God. 
Hostilities have ceased. He's not angry anymore, and we're friends. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. God provides joy to those who trust in Christ, and our hearts are filled with joy as we reflect on the goodness of the gospel, and we look forward to the coming of Jesus, and we rejoice in being part of God's family. It's joyful to be a Christian. And so what Paul is saying here is this is the priority, the kingdom. Remember what Jesus says? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's the number one goal for any Christian, seeking the kingdom. And so that means, that just puts a whole different cast on this whole question of enjoying freedoms. So Paul's point to the strong here is this. With the kingdom of God in mind, what Paul would say to the strong, whose conscience is free on secondary matters, he'd say you've got to be very, very careful because the actions that you take, the behaviors that you exhibit, the opinions that you articulate can have powerful impact on others, particularly the weak, who are watching you and following you. That your behavior can, in some cases, be the occasion for the weak to violate their conscience and do something that is gravely wrong. And so Paul says, be careful, be careful. It's very possible for two Christians to be doing the same thing and yet one is not sinning and one is. When it comes to secondary matters, and the reason is because of the way the conscience plays into this. So look at what Paul says here in verse 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's the exhortation, to be careful because others might stumble and trip over your exercise of freedom. But he goes on and he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but look at the end of verse 14. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul says, meat is not unclean, we already established that, but if someone's conscience says that it is unclean, then for that person, it is. It's unclean for him or her. And so if you go, you know, Paul sometimes, I, I think, you know, his thoughts may, maybe are a little scattered, but verse 23, he picks this up again. So we kind of have to go to the end of the chapter to ha see how he fleshes this out. Verse 23, he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if a weak Christian has doubts about drinking alcohol or dancing or going to the beach or eating meat or whatever it is, if that person has doubts, that person is condemned if he or she goes ahead and does it. Now by condemned, I don't think that means sent to hell. It doesn't mean condemned to hell. It means his or her conscience condemns him or her. And that's where the, the feelings of, of guilt and shame come in. 
So the problem here is that the weak is being led to violate his or her conscience based on an example that he or she has seen set by the strong. And what Paul is saying is, strong, you've got to be careful about that. You've got to be mindful of your brothers and sisters in Christ and the example that you're setting for them. The, the, the conscience is what is so central to what Paul is saying here. You know, if you're driving a car and something wrong with the engine, the engine light will come on, typically, and it, and it lights up, and, and you know that the car needs to be taken to the garage, you need to fix it. But what happened if the engine light never came on and you continued driving? you'd just you'd burn up your engine, wouldn't you? I mean, your car would fall apart because you weren't being warned by the warning light any longer. That's what the conscience is like. The conscience is a warning light. It goes on, it flashes at you, and it says, ah, I'm not sure, this, this doesn't seem right, I think this is wrong. Now, your conscience might not be right. <laughs> your conscience needs to be informed always by the, by the Word of God. <clears throat> but what Paul is saying here is, whether it's right or wrong, you should be sensitive to that. You should be sensitive to that conscience warning light going on. Because if you ignore it, you snuff it out, eventually it won't sound anymore. It won't light up anymore. And then the opportunity is there for you to do all kinds of shameful and problematic things. So, you know, as an example, let's say... Two guys, Joe and Jim. Joe, strong Christian, conscience-free, likes to, likes to drink. Jim, weak Christian, doesn't like to drink. They go to dinner together. Joe thinks to himself, you know, I know that Jim doesn't really like it that I like to have a beer, but, you know, he needs to grow up. You know, he, he needs to mature in his faith. He needs to see a Christian exercising his freedom, so I'm just going to go ahead and have a beer. And there's Jim. Jim likes Joe. Jim um, wants Joe's approval. Jim doesn't want to be thought of as, uh, you know, out of step, doesn't want to be thought of as immature, and so he goes ahead and he drinks, even though his conscience is saying, don't do it. And just one step of doing that, it just makes it just that much easier for Jim to violate his conscience next time. And the next time it might not be a disputable matter. It might be something more significant, like cheating on his wife. Now his conscience isn't sounding anymore, and it's easier for him to do it. That's why this is so serious. And this is what Paul is warning the strong against doing. Martin Luther actually summed this up really well. Um, Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, 16th century. God used him to recover the purity of the gospel in the church at the time, and the Roman emperor called Martin Luther to stand before him and to give an account of his teachings and his writings, and the emperor wanted him to recant everything that he had said. And Luther said this instead. I consider myself convicted by the testimonies of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. That's what Paul has in mind here. Don't violate your conscience. 
even if it's a disputable matter, even if everybody else isn't enjoying it and you just feel like you can't, then don't do it. Now, it might mean that you've got to educate your conscience and learn more about the issue. We talked about that last week a little bit. So think about the kingdom. Last thing is this. Think about, think about the cross. Verse 15 Verse 15, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so here's, here's Paul's point. Jesus loved your brother, your sister, so much that he gave up his life for that person. Will you not love your brother or sister enough to give up a little bit of your freedom? Jesus denied so much to himself so that he could save sinners. Won't you deny a little bit of your own pleasure and exercise of freedom for the benefit of your brothers and sisters? That, that's the, Paul, the point that Paul is making here. Jesus came and laid down his life for the church, for the elect, for his people. And when you become a Christian, friends, you renounce your right to be considered an isolated, detached, self-determining, autonomous individual. You're part of the church now. You're part of the family of God. You're part of the body of Christ. And as you consider the price paid for sinners, what Paul is saying is be very slow in how you engage your freedom so as not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now that word destroy... (laughs) That's, that's a tricky word, isn't it? And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. I mean, some people say that it's possible that a Christian can go to hell. That, that's really what Paul means here by destroy. Don't destroy him by flaunting your freedoms and leading a weak Christian to commit a sin so that he eventually winds up in hell. I, I, I'm not sure that that is the proper reading. It seems entirely inconsistent with Romans chapter 8. Where Paul says, there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. If you look at verse 20, he uses this word again, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. I think if we consider this in the context of the church, what Paul is saying is, don't tear down what God is building up. God is committed to building up his church and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you and I are careless about the way we engage in our freedoms, we can tear down what God is building up. There's this story, maybe you've heard, of a a guy who's walking down the street and he sees three workers outside of a building. And one is working on something and the guy says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm, I'm just chipping up this brick. And he goes to the other guy, he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm just building this wall. And he goes to the third guy, and he says, what are you doing? And he looks up to the sky, and he says, I'm building a cathedral. See, he's seen his place in the larger picture, that something great and wonderful is being built, and he's a part of that. Now, of course, God builds the church, not us, but we have our place in contributing and building the church. And what Paul would say is, For those that Christ has died, be careful about how you interfere with the work of God 
in the church. One of the greatest blessings, friends, of the gospel is freedom. We are free in Jesus from the wrath of God, free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame, free from the tyranny of the devil, free from death itself. There is freedom in the gospel. And in disputable matters, you know what? There is even freedom to be wrong. But there's never freedom to do wrong particularly to your brother or sister. Let love limit your liberty for the sake of the building up of God's church. Let's pray. God, would you give us wisdom as we think through these things? Would you please help us to exercise wisdom in matters that are disputable? Would you please, Father, give us grace, kindness, mercy, patience to our brothers and sisters? Father, would you please remind us always that we're part of a family, not off on our own? And would you please, Lord, continue to build your church in the promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.